As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times, now with goals. Hello, I'm Alison Rudd and I'm joined by an octobusting panel. Rory Smith is in the studio and down the line we have Ollie Kay and James Ducker. Before we begin, a reminder that you can see all the goals and the rest of the highlights from every Premier League game before anyone else simply by downloading the Times app to your smartphone. We will be discussing events at Old Trafford, why Michael Laudrup was sacked and whether standing areas could safely be introduced in the Championship. But first... It's all change at the top of the table after Liverpool scythed their way through a bickering Arsenal to win 5-1 after going four ahead inside the opening 20 minutes. Well, Arsenal endured their worst first half in the Premier League for 13 years and it could get worse in the second. Here is Sterling. Chesney makes the save. Sterling again. 5-0 to Liverpool. And any hope of an improbable Arsenal revival has just been snuffed out. Stephen Gerrard, he said, we have absolutely demolished a team from start to finish. That was as explosive as it gets. Ollie Kay, is he right? He is. Well, I suppose you, you, could, you could argue it wasn't from start to finish because there was so much damage done in the first 90 minutes that they only needed to score one more after that. But it was as good a performance, I would say, as anything I've seen in the Premier League this season. And there have been some very, very good performances notably from I suppose Manchester City in particular but Liverpool have suddenly got this knack of absolutely blowing teams away and, and scoring goals in fours and fives and great football breakneck pace attacking with such flair and invention and finishing so clinically at times that I, I think it really was up there I mean uh, I haven't seen I mean G- Gerard said he felt it was one of the um the top three performances in his time as a Liverpool player and I, I, I would agree with that I was there when they beat Real Madrid 4-0 was it and I, I think that probably stands out as the best in my mind from the Benitez era but they are doing this an awful lot to teams at the moment I mean Oli doesn't sound too surprised that, that Liverpool were so attacking and so good in that case why didn't Arsenal set up more defensively or to counter-attack or just take into account the fact that they were going to be on the receiving end? Well, it, it looked to me, I mean, like, like Rodgers had, had really, really, really thought through his his, his game plan and, and how best to sort of ex- exploit Arsenal. And, and he obviously, I think he shifted uh, Suarez, didn't he, out, out to the right to, to go up against Mon- Monreal. And uh, Arsenal, by contrast, it, it looked like quite a flimsy game plan. But then 
when you have so many players and you know your leading players underperforming to that extent, maybe no game plan would have worked. I think they often say, don't they, when you need it, eight of eight of your eleven players to be on to, on top of the game in the big matches, particularly against an opponent uh, that is on fire. And I mean, Arsenal had you know a couple of, a couple of players at start who who who. Um, were average. Everyone else was 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 lamentable. So you cannot legislate as a manager for for so many players going missing. And in Arteta, Ozil, Wilshire, Cazorla, Giroud were just all diabolical. I I don't know to what extent Wenger ever really has a game plan. Like that sound well, that sounds more critical than it needs to. But I, he doesn't really change his system to fit his opponents. He doesn't really sort of do anything different at home or away. It, to, an, to an extent, it's a, it's a, it's a strength that he, his team plays the way that his team plays, regardless of the opposition. And that's, that's often the hallmark of a great side, that they just do what they do and other teams can't cope with it. But I think there are occasions where you maybe need to be, to be a little bit more subtle than that and a little bit more canny. And that might be why Wenger has a comparatively poor record against his fellow title rivals and in a lot of kind of substantial Champions League games, certainly after the kind of golden era of Henri and Vieira and all that. So do you think, Rory, that Wenger would not have looked at the tapes of the way Aston Villa contained I'm sure Liverpool he, and then ignored it? I'm I mean, sure he would, and I'm sure he, there, there, was, there, there would have been some, some, intent, some attempt to try to, you know, to work out, to advise his players how to deal with Suarez and Sturridge and Sterling. But I don't think it, it didn't look like... It's hard to tell when a game changes in the first minute. It's, always, it's impossible to know what his, his intentions would have been. He might have planned to park the bus, but... Obviously, that goes out out the window as soon as you concede to Sturtle. But I, I I very rarely see Wenger try and change the way Arsenal play, particularly. The bl- the blueprint for him really was was the City game. I mean, the the sort of closest team this season that we have to sort of Man City in terms of a fast flowing, fluid sort of front six who interchange or in, uh, in sort of press with great intensity are Liverpool. You know, I mean they 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 have sort of you know swatted brushed brushed teams aside. I think that was the the eighth game this season that they've scored four goals or more and and really only only City sort of compare this season to that. So you know, and it and, and it was literally almost a carbon copy of the of of the of the game at the Etihad where Arsenal's sort of defenders in sort of midfield were just absolutely swarmed. And it was almost like Rogers had studied that game intently and thought, I've got the players, I've got the front six here who can do exactly that job. And I'll and I'll and I'll and I'll go for it. And I, and I think Monreal played against City in that six three. Yeah, I think it was did. one of his first games back, and he was absolutely abject. Honestly, it was one of the most pitiful performances <laughs> I've seen from a from a player. Even worse than Andre Santos and uh, at uh, at Old Trafford um, a season or two ago. In that sense, sort of going back to your point, Alison, Wenger looked like he'd learned no lessons whatsoever from from that beating at the Etihad and. And I bet, I bet Rogers almost couldn't believe what he was uh, he was seeing when he saw that um, when he saw Monreal at left back. The other thing that should be mentioned is that it shows how important Flamini is to Arsenal. I mean, I know that everyone said it at the start of the season. Isn't it great? What what a canny move by Wenger bringing him back. But that was the problem that there was just nobody. I mean, I, I, I like Arteta. I quite like Wilshire. I'm not sure Wilshire's a great central midfielder in a game like that, but. That they need that bite, that that ta- do you know that tactical intelligence that that Flamini has, and it just, it was just completely lacking. It looked like the Arsenal of kind of the start of last season, uh, the start of the season before that as well. That Arsenal with no backbone, with no with no sort of 
intelligent player just sitting there and directing play. They look completely directionless. Ollie, I mean, uh, James mentions not learning from the game at the Etihad. Is is this defeat from Arsenal's point of view more significant than the 6-3 thrashing at City? Well, that defeat at City didn't end up feeling that significant because they, they went on a very good run after that and got back to the top of the league and they were there till Saturday. I, I think this feels more significant because they've now got a pretty tough run of games I was going to say after Man United on Wednesday now they've got Man United on Wednesday they've got Liverpool in the cup they've got um, Bayern home and away they've got other tough games and I think everybody had already pinpointed this as the point in the season where Arsenal are really going to have a test of their mettle and this is not you know this was not a good way to start it by any means and we, we haven't even touched on well I think James mentioned him but Ozil looked like he was not engaged in the game whatsoever he looked he looked like a waste of a shirt but this isn't and this this a lot of people are saying this was a performance from Ozil which is just on the trajectory of what how he's been yeah, performing so he started well he started well and with each game he's got just just perceptibly a little less involved each time i mean what anyone got any ideas why this would be castorino says in the paper today that and it's a beautifully written piece that uh, that he it, that Ozil looks like he thinks he's doing arsenal a favor being there and you do get that impression a little bit but you can you can think a team is lucky to have you and still want to prove that they are. Yeah, the, the, when Ozil came, there was a lot of... I think he had a huge psychological importance and he's obviously a brilliant footballer. Neither of those two things are, are up for debate. But if you look at, at what happened in Spain last year, he didn't often last 90 minutes because Mourinho felt that he didn't have that... I guess the fitness, the intensity over the course of a game to really influence things. He tended to take him off after about an hour. He is the, he's just the player you want when, when everything's clicking and you, you've, you're roaring forward and you need someone to, to find little bits of space and little clever passes. But Mesut, I don't think Mesut Ozil would say that he's, he's you know, the one that you want in the trenches with you when things are going wrong. I don't think he'd, he'd pretend to be that player. But there is a question mark, I think, over yet. It's, it's not even the last few weeks. It's kind of the last three or four months, to be honest. Yes. It, it, you, you get a little bit fooled because every touch that he takes is so perfect and his, his control is so flawless and his technique is amazing. You think he, he is playing well. I think a lot of the time he looks like he's playing well. I'm not sure how much damage he always does. James, is it can Wenger drop him? What would that mean to morale? Uh, given that everyone seems to have concluded that by signing him in the first place it boosted Arsenal's self-belief. If, he, if he's playing poorly, then you know his, his price tag in that that terrific sort of early start he had shouldn't come into it. You know, Wenger's got to Wenger's got to play the players that he thinks are are most informed and that are going to be most suited to that particular game. And 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 at the moment, o- o- Ozil's performance don't necessarily warrant the sort of inclusion. Where where the issue is is how would he react to that? Is he is he the sort of player who'd respond positively, or is he the sort of player that would sulk and? Um, and not take it particularly well, and um, and not not respond like Wenger would hope would hope he hope he does. I think in Europe against Bayern Munich, you know, it might be it might be more like his game, but they've got they've got some very tough sort of league games coming up, and you do sort of wonder whether he might benefit from a um, from a, a, a brief spell on the, on the sidelines. Ollie, um, moving on to Liverpool, should they be aiming higher than fourth? When you are fourth and when you're playing as well as that, I think it's it's natural to start raising your sights and, and aim higher than that. I mean, what is it? Are they six points off the top? Yeah. I mean, we, we could all laugh at Mourinho when, when 
he says about Chelsea being a little horse and how they can't possibly challenge for the title now. I mean, they have not been used to challenging the last few seasons. The, the fact is, though, that neither of, of Arsenal, or, or but one season, have Manchester City, really. So Liverpool are the team who have come from a much, much lower base over the last two seasons. I mean, they, they've been a seventh, eighth team, a team that sort of wins about sort of 40% of their games over the last few seasons, or three, four seasons. And suddenly they are playing at a level and scoring goals at a rate uh, and performing so well that it is legitimate to ask that, that question about can they win it. There will come a point if Liverpool aren't, if they do stay sort of five or six points behind, where they have to say, look, they've, they've got a decent run. And it's not an easy running because the, the flip side to having all the top ten at home is that you've got all the bottom ten away, which when things come to the crunch is not what you want. You don't want to be playing relegation-threatened teams in April at their place. But... Yeah, I mean, if if City sort of stumble a little bit, if Arsenal, if this is if this is Arsenal trying to regress into the mean, then it's possible. But I can see why Rogers is saying, "Let's just get fourth. That was, I mean, that that wasn't even the target for the season. The target was Champions League football within three years. So he's ahead of schedule. So I think there's an, it's important to manage expectations to an extent. But at the same time, I refuse to believe that the players aren't looking at that and thinking, "Well, actually, do you know what? We are only six points off the top." We might as well go for it. Just win every, try and win every game you play and see what happens. Yeah. Finally, on that match, um, James, if I were Roy Hodgson, I would definitely be taking Raheem Sterling to Brazil with me. He's got lightning pace, and you know, I, I do think that's the, the the thing you need more than any other any other when you're playing in that sort of tournament. People are scared to tackle him. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know. It, 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 sheer pace like that is, can, can be devastating when when, heart, when sort of harnessed properly. And you know he had an electrifying start to his Liverpool career, and then uh, there's a few sort of off-field issues, and he's um, he's for maybe maybe he's uh, maybe it all went to his, his head a little bit, but and he took it took it his form certainly took a nosedive, but he's really really come back. He's really come back strongly. He um, was very impressive at uh, at the Etihad. Um, over Christmas, and, and and he sort of really kicked on from there, and it does help. Uh, it does help, I think, playing a team with Coutinho in in Suarez in it. You know, England don't have players like that, and and he'd have to. He'd certainly have to adjust to that. Rory, what is is the feeling that Sterling has overcome his uh, mental frailties? Yeah, Rogers has sort of referred to that a couple of times that that maybe the second part of the season last season was difficult for him because because of the contract issue and because maybe he'd, he'd had a little bit too much too quickly. But he does seem to have, have buckled down a little bit. He got rid of the stupid haircuts. And there does seem to be a renewed kind of vigour and professionalism almost to his performances. And I think that's natural for a teenager. He was 17 when he came through. He's always been dressed up as this big hope. So it's probably natural there'll come a point where where maybe he did start to believe his own hype a little bit and his performances dropped, but he does seem to be over it. Launched long by John Arnarisa. Vidic with the header. Oh, Michael Carrick oblivious to the fact that Sidwell was coming in from behind him. It's Kieran Richardson. Saved by De Gea. Bent. 2-2. And in the fourth minute of stoppage time, Fulham have salvaged an equaliser to break Manchester United hearts. Fulham travelled to Manchester with a wild and wacky plan, a puzzling team sheet and the look of relegation fodder. But... Then, their new signing, William Kvist, revealed before kick-off that Rennie Mullenstein had a, I quote, superb plan. Well, it was superb, wasn't it, Rory? It was, yeah. Uh, I, I really enjoyed Mike Phelan's uh, 
description of it as being a dud plan that was working and then it stopped working and then it was working again. <laughs> thought that was fantastic insight from uh, from the man who's been manager of Manchester United for the last five years. That was what teams used to do at Old Trafford and they they normally got battered. But Fulham that showed that they were they were dogged, they were intelligent, they 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 played to United's what United think are their strengths but are actually their weaknesses. They allowed Manchester United to cross the ball 81 times at a central defender who was six foot seven, and I mean. To be honest, Moonlinstein kind of said that United played into their hands with their predictability. Huge, huge credit for Fulham. I'm not, I'm not sure it's enough to save them, but huge credit, huge credit for, the, for that performance. It well, wasn't, it wasn't a superb plan, though, was it? No, it was going, uh, going all out defensive. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was a plan helped enormously by the predictability of United's attacks. I certainly agree with Moonlinstein in that sense. But had only, had more than 18 of the 81 crosses. Found it, found it, a teammate. Then I, I suspect Fulham would have had a lot more uh, trouble dealing with um, dealing with those crosses. But th- there was a lot of issues in, in United's performance, and and you know it did raise Mullenstein. You know he, he may have an axe to grind. Was was right to sort of question uh, Moyes' tactics, but there was a large element of luck I think involved in um, uh, you know in, in that result. As as much in the end as they sort of. They did, did, did deserve a, um, a, a point, and as, as, as equally lamentable as United's defend, defending wasn't as I think they had like four attacks for them, and they, they, they scored from two of them. They should have scored from another. Do you remember when uh, when Chelsea beat Barca? Uh, what was it? No, when, when in fact when they drew drew with Barca in the new Camp two all. And it, the, I remember the, the next day, everyone sort of said, "Oh, what a great defensive performance!" He said, so "I think well, fine, they got through a great result, but it can't be. It's not a great defensive performance if you concede twice. That's not. That's not a great defensive performance. That's conceding twice. It was the same yesterday. Williamson says, "Yeah, it was really predictable. Why did they? Why did they let United score twice then? If it was if it was that predictable, then United wouldn't have scored twice. If it was that easy to defend against, then United would have got none. Surely. Sorry, that just annoyed me. <laughs> I, I would say credit to." Um... Dan Byrne, in particular, I'd never seen him play before, and, and thought that that selection in particular was was quite bizarre. He'd only he'd only played three Premier League games before, and I thought he was superb. But if you're six foot six or six foot seven or whatever he he was, I mean, it, it must have been a delight to find United not only just crossing the ball endlessly, but crossing it to the head of a six, you know, a guy who's six foot six, six foot seven. I mean, there was no way. I mean, I'd love to see how many of those crosses were delivered above shoulder height and how many of those balls United won at that height. Because if you've got Rooney, you've got Van Persie, you've got Mata coming in from one wing and you're not going to win headers. Isn't it slightly pathetic that United just kept doing the same thing? I mean, James, you sound you sound you sound like you've got some sympathy for Moyes, and that they were unlucky. Uh, no, I, no, I, no, no, no. I, I, all, all no, no. I was all I was trying to stress before that was that you couldn't describe Fulham's uh, plan as a superb plan. That's not to say for a minute that I um, that I thought uh, that I thought Moyes' tactics were correct. Quite the opposite, actually. Um, it seems that one matter has been signed to become the new Antonio Valencia. I mean, I was quite critical after the Stoke defeat when he was played pretty much as an orthodox right winger as to, to what is the point of spending £37 million pounds in a play if, that, if that's, if that's going to be your plan. I, I cannot, for the life of me, understand how he is not starting games with Mata, Yanazai and Rooney as a compact three behind Van Persie and letting them interchange and be fluid, uh, which is exactly the sort of qualities that they have. Instead, we have a situation whereby 
you've got one winger hugging the left touch line. You've got one uh, makeshift winger who's actually a, a sort of a central attacking player hugging the the uh, the right the right the right touch line. And balls are just being sort of pinged into the uh, the middle, and you've got Wayne Rooney increasingly isolated, not just because of the of the, uh, of the wingers, but because the midfield sits so deep on the manager's instruction. He needs to be playing. Those, those best players week in, week out. You, you two were both there. I've, I've only seen the, the sort of clip from the press conference where, where he, he sort of said that crossing the ball is, is, is part of United's DNA. And James, you, you wrote last week, this is the best phrase I've heard to sum up United's problem, is that, he's, that Moyes is somewhere between delusion and defiance in terms of his kind of point of view and the way that he thinks United seem to be playing. But do you get the impression that he knows that, that they are predictable? Uh, no, this is the, this is the this is the this is the I think this is what is a great concern to um, to United supporters is there seems to be times when he thinks that um, they've played very well but they've not got a result or they've narrowly narrowly they've narrowly lost. I mean, by what sort of standard is he judging Man United sort of performances? I, I mean, one can only imagine sort of an Everton standard when they were really really struggling as opposed to sort of finishing fourth. Um, the, the, the it does seem to be sort of very it does seem to be quite predictable for the most part get it out wide there's very little there's very little play through through the middle i mean one thing one thing he might say is that until i get the sort of central midfielders in it's it's going to be difficult to play the the way i want to but i don't think anyone sort of sees signs of how Moyes, what what Moyes' blueprint is what his plan for the future is i mean if you go, we go back to Brendan Rodgers uh, obviously, it has taken some time for him to get to this stage, but right from the start, it was quite clear that it, there was a certain way he wanted his team to play. And yes, there'd be very bad days at the office, there'd be some good days, but he wouldn't deviate from the plan that he that that he wants. No one really knows what what they're supposed to be doing, and the problem is, is the players themselves don't really seem to be know what what, what they're doing. We had a, we've had a situation with the two central midfielders sitting very, very deep. And basically, in recent weeks, the, it, it, it's sort of been relayed to Moyes that it's just not working. It's leaving Rooney far too isolated, or, or whoever's playing in that hole, particularly the wingers are so are hugging the touchline. So there has been some sort, sort of change. He has tried to push a midfielder further on, but, but what is the sort of end game here? What's the strategy? So, Ollie, do you, how do you think Moyes will react to the drop points against Fulham? I mean, it's 18 points dropped at home now. When does it start that he he proves that he's got some tactical now and the ability to impose his personality on the team and say that wasn't good enough, we're going to do it differently? Do you think he will? I expect he will look at that performance as, as one that was good in most respects but, but extremely weak in both penalty areas, which I think is probably true in a way, but it's it's that kind of match where a manager would normally turn around and say, look how many crosses we put in, look how many shots we had, look how much possession we had, look how few times they even crossed the halfway line, as if that is going to be, you know, as if that is a, a real um, defence of his team. I mean, I, I thought it was pretty indefensible that they failed to win that game. If that had been a training ground exercise where you'd been playing, VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. 
Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. ...against that Fulham back four for 90 minutes with you know, pretty much total possession and, and put that many crosses in and, and yet sort of created so few chances and, and converted so few chances and somehow contrived to concede two goals to a team that barely had the ball. I think that's pretty lamentable in, 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 in many ways. And I think Moyes can choose to look at it whichever way he wants. I think that the defiant way would be to um, talk about the positives, but I, I think he will, I mean, he, he used that, he mentioned that thing about softness, which I totally agree with. They, they look like a team that's got no backbone. Ollie, I have to. I just there's, there's one thing I have to clear up with you. Did you subcontract your marks out of ten for the players? Because it says in the Times on Monday morning that you you've given Steve Sidwell seven out of ten. I'd have given him ten. I'm I'm confused. Well, what did he do? But I mean, look, he scored a brilliant goal. He won the ball very well for the second goal, but I barely saw him in between. He wasn't, he wasn't like he, really? was, he was... Really? Really? I think you were just yeah. looking at United. I don't think you were looking at Fulham. I, 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 no, I wasn't. I, I just w- was seeing one team with the ball and one team without it. He, he did he not to... stop. He did not stop running. He was tackling. He was creative. He you know, was the heartbeat. And you look, that, that team sheet was the most gobsmacking team sheet I have ever seen and saw before kick-off and thought, oh my goodness, what the hell is going on there? There were, there were debutants galore. There were players who barely proved themselves and, and have looked rubbish for Fulham. He's mangled them all together. You don't know what formation it's going to be. And it's stuck together because of Steve Sidwell, who I would consider taking to Brazil. I know no one's going to agree with me, but I think he's been the one bright spot for Fulham all season. And it came to the fore yesterday. Seven out of ten is very good in the times. You gave Dan Byrne an eight, Heitinger an eight. Ah, ah, ah. Annoyed me, Ollie. It's only one point. What does it mean for Fulham? I'm not sure. I... I think it, we're at the stage now at the, bo- at the bottom where you probably have to look at the fixtures to work it. They're all basically as bad as each other. From I think Swansea have got a little bit more than the others, but the bottom ten who are separate, it's not quite as close as it, as it used to be at the bottom because I think Fulham now four point three or four points off safety. They're not. Then it's not like there is a slight. There's a little yeah. bit of a gap opened up. I think the bottom ten are all as bad as each other. They're basically interchangeable. Um, so you look at who's got who's got what fixtures. Like Norwich's last four. Are Arsenal, Liverpool, Chelsea, and City? I think, or not City United, which means that the chances of of Norwich getting more than three points against Manchester United from those last four games are, are, are pretty slim. So you, that means that Norwich are now playing with what? What's my maths? Uh, nine games to get the points that they need to stay up. So you'd, you'd automatically start to fear for them. If, I've not seen Fulham's fixture list. You need to go through it. But I think I mean Fulham. Fulham, Rory, have got. I've got Liverpool, Chelsea, City, and Everton in uh, four four of the next seven games. That's not ideal. No, I think I think it's it's that stage of the season now where you have to look at you've got all these teams who are basically the same. They're all as bad as each other. You look at who they're playing, and then the ones who've got the toughest fixtures will go down. No, oh, that seems a bit clinical. Well, it's, it, you know, where's the romance? There's in no that, room for Rory? art or beauty or romance. Alice, <laughs> and it's, anyone does anyone think Fulham could possibly stay up? James, I, I, I think they've. I think any. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like to. I wouldn't like to say anyone categorically is going to go down or not. We've seen in in recent seasons some utterly sort of bonkers results in the final eight weeks of a of a Premier League campaign, and so so anything is possible. I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't say they are definitely going to go down. It's going to be very very tough, and, and given those fixtures that I've just uh, suggested, is the next, you know, the next 
uh, well, the remainder of this month and most of March, you know, should should, should define them. There is a danger they could could get cut adrift. But that said, you'd rather have those fixtures in February and March than in April and May. Yes, that's true. Fulham's. I'm just looking at the fixtures there. Last seven or eight games are, you know, are winnable. You know, Villa, Norwich, Spurs, Hull, Stoke, Palace. And the thing is, there's so many teams down there. James is right that there is a possibility if you lose all of those games that they've got coming up, then you could you could be seven or eight points off. But there's so many teams down there that as long as you can stay in touch, there'll always be ones from above who start dropping down when they have harder fixtures. So I mean, it, it could well be that we go into the last couple of games of the season with eight or nine who can still go down. Yeah. Um, but it'll be decided by who's got the, the toughest run of the games and when. Right. Time for um, a debate. Michael Laudrup guided Swansea to their first piece of significant silverware when he won the League Cup last year. But as he was planning for the Europa League game against Napoli, he was sacked. So was this a reasonable response to Swansea's loss of form or a panic move? I can't quite get my head round the words Swansea have sacked Michael Laudrup. Anyway, while I try and cope with that, um, Ollie. Was this inevitable? There was a lot of talk, wasn't there, about Laudrup probably not staying after the summer anyway. So was it pragmatic? Was it reasonable? Was it a travesty? What was it? I would say uh, of those three, it was pragmatic and and reasonable. Um, I'm normally one who sort of shakes my head in disgust when a a manager gets sacked, or often anyway. But he was going to leave uh, at the end of the season. I think that was pretty well accepted. So why not let him stay and win the Europa League for Swansea? They'd been poor for a couple of months. There were an awful lot of tensions behind the scenes, not only between himself and players, but there was a, a sense that things weren't going well on the training ground, that, that, that his training wasn't working. And also, you know, there'd been rows about um, Laudrup being sort of fairly dismissive of, of, of what was needed in the transfer market in January. And I, I, I interviewed Laudrup early, early last season, loved him as a player, and really wanted to buy into this vision of Laudrup, the, the genius manager who makes everything look effortless. But everything I've heard from out of Swansea over the last six to 12 months, you know, almost ever since the League Cup final, has been of a, of a, a team sort of on the drift. To sort of an outsider who, you know, just sort of, you know, pays, pays sort of passing attention to Swansea, I can understand that it, it would be a very, very... Uh, difficult to decision to, to rationalise, and in some cases, people would maybe consider it inexplicable. They just see, you know, Laudrup coming in, winning the League Cup, you know, continuing this sort of model of of, um, of very attractive sort of expansive football. Where when when really the picture sort of behind the scenes was was very very different. I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't like it liken it to to uh, to the same extent as. The situation of Roberto Mancini at, at Manchester City, where behind the scenes it it, it really did get ugly. The, the murmurings and, and and what was being said was there were some similarities to the sort of you know the early warning signs um, that developed at City under Mancini and and uh, and, I, and I think um, you know Swansea Swansea have proven that they're not a they're not a knee jerk club that make rash decisions they have a sound sort of ownership structure they generally are very supportive of the managers and and, and believe in their way and for them to sort of make that decision they won't have taken it lightly but they will have been concerned enough to, to make it you know for the for the sort of the future benefit of the club one thing that be being been put to me about Laudrup was that he was just very he did not take 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 well to recommendations about maybe we could improve this in this 
way and not not someone forcing something on him saying we have to do it this way we have to do it that way just generally recommendations about maybe we need to think about about something in this way the obvious parallel to me rory doesn't seem to be city so much as spurs i mean you've got two teams hoping to do well in europe and you've dispensed with a distant European style manager and you bring in someone who's already there and claims to know the players much better and shows more passion and does things in a more sort of join the dots sort of way and so so, so, so Gary Monk is sort of the new Tim Sherwood is that a reasonable parallel to draw? Yeah well the temptation is always to to look at any decision made within English football and assume that the problem that's been identified is that whoever is at fault isn't shouting enough Mm -hmm. and neither Loudrop nor Villas-Boas were shouters and I think that's probably a, a fatal flaw for both and they should both look in their time off to learn how to shout at, at greater volume and in greater frequency. Um, I think, well, look, you speak to people at, at Swansea about Monk, they they really rate him. They think that there is something there. We, we know that Levy likes Sherwood and has always liked Sherwood, but Levy's behaviour in giving Sherwood the job didn't indicate that he's got any great faith in him. He, he wants to see how he'll do, yeah. but he's not certain that it'll work out. Whereas Swansea are going to do everything they can to make sure that Munch does work. They want him to succeed. Um, he He's lo- further along in his UEFA badges, isn't he? Well, that's very important. No, he is, and, and they've been grooming him for this job. That's a weird weird verb to use, but he, they've been grooming him for this job for ages. And they, they really... I spoke to Ashley Williams about, about him after the derby, and, and he said that he, he can see little sort of traits of Martinez, little traits of Rogers. He's had Munch had a great coaching education. There's th- three people to work with, Martinez, Rogers, and Loudrup. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not a bad background to have. It's, William said they're doing similar kind of training exercises, it's sessions that he recognises, that he remembers from Martinez and Rogers. Swansea want Munt to succeed. They think they've got something special there, and they think that he can start this kind of horrible cliche, but this boot room philosophy at the club, which they're really keen to introduce, to see people organically introduced into management rather than appointing kind of random outsiders. As they did with Loudrup, it was a good appointment, it worked. I think you have to look at across the, the whole piece and say that Loudrup was a success at Swansea. He, you know, he'll put it at the top of his CV. It won't be buried down with personal interests. But <laughs> the, um, they want to have that kind of thing where, where they can bring their own managers through and they can continue the philosophy. And they see Munch as being, as being the first step in that. And also, and this is important, he looks like Steve the Pirate from, Do- from Dodgeball. Oh, he looks like him. He right. does, yeah. Okay. Looks exactly like him. <laughs> just, just on Loudrup as well, Alison. You know, if you actually look at his, his relatively short managerial career... You know, he spent very little time at clubs, you know, a year at Getafe or so, a year or so at, at Spartak Moscow, similar time at, at, at Mallorca. I mean, you know, he, he sort of, you know, he's, he's a bit of a nomad, really, already. I think the, th- the thing with Loudrup is that he comes in and he's do- he does have, like, Ollie also know this from interviewing him, he, he has an aura. Like you, Ollie has, Ollie has that, <laughs> same, that similar aura. And he, he sort of comes into a room and, like, wow, that's Ollie Kay. But Loudrup is, he is charismatic. There's people who know him say that he's maybe in, in personal situations he's quite sort of shy and a little bit awkward but he is he is a charismatic figure especially to footballers and he comes into clubs and he and he gives players their head he basically says look I trust you do what you like he treats them as adults there's no kind of regimented kind of you've got to do this this and this it's all very relaxed it's all very laid back and that works really well initially because players respond to it and they th- expect it's not the same after Rodgers because obviously Rodgers isn't some sort of sergeant major but he goes, in, go, goes into a club where maybe the players have had a more dictatorial manager and they really respond to that freedom but the problem is that when things go really well as they did at Swansea the players maybe start to take advantage and when things start to go badly as they also did at Swansea the players then blame that despite the fact that that same approach has worked 
gloriously. As soon as things go wrong, because players will seek excuses for anything, it's never their fault. They will blame the fact, oh, the managers, no, there's no discipline. So the trip to Dubai, which was which came out in the papers last week, has been some sort of in, indisciplined rabble. The players loved at the time. They had a really good time. They thought it was a brilliant bonding exercise. But now they say, oh, actually, no, that was no. He, he didn't, didn't give us a curfew. You're grown men. Why do you need a curfew? But he's a James. He's a nomad, partly I think, also because he doesn't adapt. He doesn't want to be told to change. He has his way of doing things, and he doesn't like the. He, he finds it almost insulting, I think, that if results go badly, that you automatically are told as the manager will change something because he believes in what he believes. And after the West Ham game, which was the last post-match interview he gave, and I was there, and he rambled on about how it is impossible for individuals to change the way they are. And he was ostensibly talking about um, Chico Flores and his theatrical personality. But in fact, he could have been t- just talking about himself, really. He was saying, I don't, you know, you can't tell someone, behave differently, you are what you are. And the Swansea management hierarchy, they said, well, we don't want you to be what you are anymore. We're going to debate something else this week in more depth and a quick hit. We're going to look at the fact that the government has agreed to discuss permitting standing at championship grounds after football league clubs voted in favour of a change in the law. And it seems most Premier League clubs, I think 19 out of 20 in fact, are roughly in favour of a change as well. Uh, This of course is in the context of the fact that the Hillsborough Family Support Group opposes any plans to allow standing at football matches and is writing to all clubs to ask them not to pursue this. This is, I think, a difficult issue, but it seems to me very peculiar as we approach the 25th anniversary of the Hillsborough tragedy for um, this to become an an issue in football, and and it could well happen unless people like the Hillsborough Family Support Group um, remind everyone why we're in in this, this situation to begin with. I am against going back in time and introducing standing i i know it was fun to stand but i think you know we've we've grown used to not doing so at big grounds where there's a lot of a lot of a lot of people in there why 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 even risk it why bother devising special seats that retract and are supposedly safe i personally don't think it's something that the, the game desperately needs in order to grow and succeed it's doing perfectly well without it uh, Rory, are you equivocal on this, though? Yeah, I'm torn. I'm torn. I, I can understand. You, you looked at, at Germany, and it, it does work. So there's no problem with safe standing in Germany, so it, it can be done safely. I, I don't think that introducing standing areas again is the same as going back to the problems that caused Hillsborough and and that made that made football in the 80s such an insane uh, and unsafe experience i think there are ways of doing it so that it's it's handled more 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 sensibly more intelligently i think tony barrett wrote a good piece on this sort of saying that that just because one disaster happens doesn't mean that you have to rule out you 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 can have you can at least have a a conversation about it um but at the same time I, i completely understand the 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 hillsborough families message i understand liverpool's liverpool's stance on it they're the one club that has said they're not prepared to talk about it they will do whatever the families advise them to do whatever the families think that's what liverpool will follow so i don't think i don't i don't think there'll be any safe standing at anfield whatever happens i don't think that's on the cards i can see why the clubs want the atmosphere benefit that it brings you'd like to think it might bring prices down which might help kind of stop the game's rampant gentrification 
I think that there, that there are powerful arguments on both sides. And yeah, to be honest, I don't have a, I don't have a. If you had to, gun to your head, you have to say one way or the other. What would you, what would you say? You I'd say why is someone putting a gun to my head? <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think it should be should be investigated because I don't think that that just because one bad thing happens, one one terrible terrible thing happens, means that y- you have to necessarily put a blanket ban on 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 something on that kind of activity because it wasn't wasn't just standing that caused Hillsborough. There was I mean, that, as, as we know from from the, the long fight for justice, there were other issues at play. And I, I, yeah, and it's, it's, it's a really emotive, sen- sensitive subject, and it's difficult to kind of to be coherent and as coherent on it as you like. I think it's worth having the conversation to explore if there is a way of making it work, so that what happened at Hillsborough can never happen again, but that some of the benefits of standing can be can be retained. James, why why is this something that football needs? Why do we have to? open it up and talk about it and think of ways of going back to standing. Why does football need this? Rory and uh, Ollie, you know, touched on two points there. I think atmosphere at, at, um, at grounds, um, I'm generally obviously restricted to sort of the Premier League these days, but I do think um, I do think uh, the atmosphere at, uh, at grounds needs need to fill it, needs a boost. And similarly, um, you know, I do think standing areas would, would result in a drop in prices and Football is becoming extremely expensive. Uh, it's become sort of a middle to middle upper class of sport. Uh, upper class sport. Oh, but the fact is, James, the fact, ways. James, the fact you say that, that to me, that implies as if you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating on purpose. It seems to me you're saying, ah, well, maybe there can be sections of grounds where tickets are cheap and you can cram people in, and I'm it not, becomes no, a more no, unpleasant experience, not, and you're I'm, paying no. less money, so it's le- it's less. Less gentrified, that's and that, that a, that's to me. Usually, Palliser from what I've seen. I know it is. I, I know it is. I'm, I'm not, just stirring I, I, it. I, look, what, one thing I would say is, I would like to. I agree with the with with the sort of the 25th anniversary of Hills for coming up. The timing, to me, is odd. But sort of going forward, I think there needs to be a thorough discussion of it. As Rory said, I think it needs to be investigated thoroughly. Well. My, and it needs to be determined as to whether it's workable. It's, it's hard to think of an appropriate kind of parallel. After the Challenger disaster, NASA didn't stop exploring space. They just made it safer. And that's the, is that not the same principle? That what well, we have, we've done that. We've made it safer to be at a top-flight ground. Yeah, no, much safer, and it's been a hu- of huge benefit. And I think you're right. It has changed the culture of, 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 the, ma- of the match day experience in the Premier League and largely 99% in the Championship. But... That doesn't necessarily mean that you should that it has to stop there. I guess that you, if there is a way of standing that is safe, that can that can rid rid the game of the risks of of another Hillsborough happening, which is obviously the last thing anybody wants, then then it sh- then it is worth exploring. If you find if you find that you can't do that, if you can't guarantee people's safety, then you've had the conversation and you stop the conversation. Right, I've denied you, gentlemen, the hit that comes with those quick-fire questions at the end. So I'm going to let you, if you so wish, raise any other business very quickly. If there's one thing that has really bugged you over the weekend that you feel you have to tell me about, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, interviewed Peter Cech after the game at Stamford Bridge, and I asked him, because it's quite hard to get Peter Cech to get fired up, so I was saying, go on, player gets a hat-trick. What, do, what happens if you're a player and you've got a hat-trick? You know, what do you do? Do, they, do you make them buy them cream cakes? 
no, you just keep the ball and the players sign the ball. I, I would quite like there to be some more traditions in the dressing room at Premier League grounds where if something nice happens, like you score a hat-trick, you have to buy cream cakes or something. I've got one. Um, at the South Wales derby on Saturday, there, were, there was just one Norwe- of, of Cardiff's Norwegian contingent, three-strong Norwegian con- contingent on the bench, Mats Mullodali. Magnus Volvikram and the other one, uh, Joanna Burdett, weren't there. At, or they weren't in the matchday squad. Uh, I find that odd. I I, I know it's a. Um, uh, I just Daniel Sturridge's goal celebration. I, just, <laughs> I, I, I try sort of. I, I try to put it at the back of my mind, but I see him, and you just want to slap him, don't you? I mean, it's just. It's almost like he stood there thinking, "How can I make myself just." look really, really unlikable and really, really <laughs> annoying. That goal celebration is a reason not to take stories to Brazil. <laughs> uh, absolutely. It's just, you watch that absolute masterclass and there's just so much to admire and then it's ruined <laughs> by a goal celebration so bad in just... Oh, God, he's just, this, he's just so pleased with himself. He's just absolutely nauseating to witness. Yeah. I saw a, a thing that was tweeted about from Liverpool's programme on, on Saturday where it had a question and answer with Luis Suarez. It said, I'm looking at it now, last time he laughed out loud, his answer, when I was sitting on the bench during the derby, one of the lads said something funny and we were laughing. <laughs> That's that's like one of those boring Milner tweets, isn't it? James <laughs> Milner parody. It's uh, oh, you know what what happened to uh, what happened to dressing room humour and uh, sort of that that humour being sort of rammed down people's throats in a slightly annoying way, rather than just. Uh, well, what happened to it was it was quotas, wasn't it? How many Spaniards are allowed to sit next to each other? How many Italians? I How would many like, Scots? I, Ollie, do you know who the wag is in, on the Liverpool bench? Who's the funniest player at Liverpool? Do you think it's Luis Alberto? I bet he's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Times readers will now know how hard it is to extract a decent anecdote of detail from a footballer <laughs> in this day and age. Next week, we'll be chatting about the weekend's FA Cup action and the rematch between City and Chelsea and the small matter of Arsenal seeking revenge against Liverpool. Thank you to Oliver Kay, Rory Smith and James Ducker for the big talk chaps and to all of you for listening. I'm Alison Rudd. Goodbye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification and you're away. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.